Have you ever noticed how it is that we have an ability to remember truths that are, or so-called truths maybe, that are presented to us in a short form format? I don't even mean a tweet. I'm talking about a sentence, a statement, what I would call a one-liner. One-liners are easy to remember. They are sometimes true, but not always true. And we tend to believe them because they are so memorable. Let me give you an example of what I mean. Do you know this one-liner? An apple a day keeps, finish it for me, you got it. An apple a day keeps the doctor away. We all have heard that all of our lives. We will never forget it. But here's the question. Is it always true? Is it true that if you eat an apple a day, you'll never have to go to the doctor? No, that's not true. If you eat an apple a day, you might get a stomachache and have to go to the doctor. But, but it's, it's, it's a, a saying that we sort of incorporate and go, oh yeah, I know that saying. Here's one. A penny saved is a penny what? Yeah, there you go. A penny saved is a penny earned. Now, I would suggest that that one is true. That one's always true. If you save a penny instead of spending it, it's like you've earned a, a second penny. Here's a third one, and we're going to put this one on the screen for you because I hope you'll write it down. Here's something that you probably have heard as a Christian. It's this. It is that faith and fear cannot exist in the same heart. Have you ever heard that? Faith and fear cannot exist in the same heart. Now, don't answer out loud, but I want to ask you, do you think that's true or false? Do, do you think, don't answer out loud, but is it true to say that faith and fear cannot exist in the same heart, or is that false? Well, I don't know how you're answering it in your heart, but I would suggest to you that it is, in fact, not true at all. In fact, I would suggest to you that there will always be in the life of every Christian a measure of tension between faith and fear. That, that tension will always, to varying degrees, be present in our lives until we make it to heaven. Now let me begin with definitions so that we're all thinking the same thing and you're not all thinking that I mean one thing when I mean another. Let's begin by understanding what we mean by faith. When the Bible uses the word faith, it uses a word which means confident belief. That's the best way to, to define it. Faith is a confidence or a confident belief in the person of God the word of God, the goodness of God. It is a confident belief, a confidence that I believe that God is who he says he is and that he is good. Faith is rooted in God's word. So God's word feeds my faith. God's word informs my faith. God's word strengthens my faith. Faith is when I believed God to be true because I have learned it through his word and by his spirit in my life. The writer of Hebrews defined faith like this. Hebrews 11 verse 1 says, now faith is the assurance. I love that word. It is the assurance of what we hope for. Faith is the certainty of what we do not 
see. So what the writer of Hebrews says is that there are some things about God I can't see yet. There are some things about God that I've always learned from his word, but I've never seen with my eyes, but I am certain that they are true. There are some promises that God makes to me that I know that he will keep. By faith, I am certain that those things are so. That's what faith is. Fear, on the other hand, is uncertainty. If faith is certainty, then fear is uncertainty. And while faith is rooted in the word of God, which informs my faith and inspires and feeds my faith, fear is rooted in our fallen nature, in our sinful selves. And fear is informed by and fed by our circumstances. So I'm in my fallen flesh, looking at what's going on in my life, and it causes me to have fear. Faith informed by the word, focusing on him. Fear informed by my circumstances, focusing on my flesh. And it is the, it is the plan of fear. It is the strategy of fear to produce in us a timidity or a cowardice. In fact, we're going to look at a verse in a few minutes where the very word that's translated fear means cowardice. Now the question I asked you a minute ago is can faith, confident belief in God, and fear, uncertainty uh, in in my assurances, can those two things exist in the same heart at the same time? And I believe they can. In fact, I believe they do to varying degrees. And I want to show you one of the reasons I believe this in Matthew chapter number 8. And I want you to look. You've got your Bibles open there. Listen to Matthew 8 beginning in verse number 23. Scripture says, And when he, Jesus, was entered into a ship, his disciples followed him into the boat. Uh, Pop quiz. Who followed Jesus into the boat? Who does it say it? They were his disciples. These are disciples of Jesus. Verse 24. And behold, there arose a great storm or tempest in the sea, insomuch that the ship was covered with the waves. The the waves are crashing over the sides of the boat. They're taking on water. Jesus is asleep. And verse 25 says, and his disciples went to him. Pop quiz. Who went to him? His disciples. His disciples went to him, woke him up, saying, Lord, save us, for we're perishing. And Jesus said to them, verse number 26, why are you so fearful? Do you see it? Why are you fearful, O you of little faith? So he rebukes them for their diminished faith, but he acknowledges that they have faith, but at the same time, they are experiencing fear. He goes on to say in verse number 26, he spoke to the winds and the sea, there was a great calm, but those men then marveled saying, what manner of man is this that even the winds and the seas obey him? Now imagine this moment, you have these disciples on the boat with Jesus. They have just heard him deliver the sermon on the mount. This message, this teaching on the kingdom. He said, I've come to bring the kingdom and I'm going to change the way that you live in this world through my kingdom. And these men believe that he came to bring the kingdom. They believe that he's the Messiah. 
They've left everything to follow him. They believe Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah. They have faith. They are believers. They have seen him in this very chapter, Matthew chapter 8. They watched him embrace a leper. When every other person backed up and ran from a leper, Jesus went and hugged the leper. And in the moment of that embrace, the leprosy vanished and the man was healed. They saw that. They saw Jesus as a centurion came to him and said, speak the word and my servant will be healed. And Jesus spoke a word and that man's servant was healed. Same chapter. It was in this chapter that they went with him into the home of Simon Peter and Jesus healed her mo- uh, his mother-in-law. They've seen those healings. My point is they are believers and yet they were afraid. And then when you watch what happens, he wakes up, rebukes the wind and the sea, and and there's a great calm. And then they say, wow, what manner of man is this that even the seas and the winds obey him? Here you have men who who have faith, but they're afraid, and now they have an experience with Jesus which bolsters and builds and encourages their faith. I want you to know that this This account of these faithful men uh, struggling with fear reminds me of Mark chapter 9 where a father brings his son to Jesus and asks him to heal him. And Jesus says to him, all things are possible to him who believes. And you remember what the father responded, verse 24? He said, immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. I mean, that's where we live sometimes. That we say, Lord, I believe, but my belief, my faith is mingled with fear. My faith is mingled with anxieties. My faith is mingled with doubt. I do have certainty about you, Lord, but my certainty is sometimes and in some ways marred by cowardice, by timidity and fear. Now, I should say, because I don't want there to be any misunderstanding, I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm I'm saying. Every maturing saint should be increasing in faith all the time. Our faith should be growing stronger and stronger as we read and study God's Word, as we submit to God's Word, as we surrender to the Holy Spirit, as we give our lives to serve the Lord, as we walk with Christ and He's faithful to us. Our faith should be growing all the time. But here's the thing. There is an inverse correlation from faith to fear. So that when you first come to Christ, you've got faith, but you also have a lot of things you don't know about. And as you grow in faith, your fear begins to diminish. This is what it looks like to be maturing as a saint. So as I'm growing, my faith gets stronger. I struggle less and less with fear. Sometimes, sometimes along that journey, there's a struggle. There's a a crisis moment, there's a crucible moment where now there's, there's a little bit of back and forth and a struggle, but my, my general movement ought to always be increasing faith and diminishing fear. If y'all understand both campuses, shout amen. Does that make sense? But there will always be in our lives until we get to heaven, and praise God, one day we will get to heaven, our faith will turn to sight, we will never have uncertainty about anything again, but until we get to heaven, there will always be this measure of 
of fear competing with faith. So we need to be honest about that. We need to know where the fears come from and how to respond to them, and we need to make sure that we are walking in faith. And so today, in Genesis chapter number 20, we are going to see in the life of Abraham this man of great faith. And Abraham certainly was a man of great faith, and he was a faithful man. But we are going to see him struggling with, operating on the basis of fear. Let me set the scene for you just before we read, beginning in verse number 1 of Genesis 20. Some of you, I hope, will remember that last Sunday we finished chapter 19 where God pours out fire and brimstone, judgment, upon Sodom. Lot and his two daughters are the only survivors. They are carried out of town by the angels. Literally, by the skin of their teeth, they're rescued. And sadly, the worldly, carnal lustful, incestuous life of Lot disappears from the pages of Scripture at the end of chapter 19. You never see him again in the biblical narrative after the close of chapter 19. As you come to the end of chapter 19, he's going off to the mountain with his daughters and Abraham is standing on the Judean hills looking over the valley, praying, interceding for Lot and his family and for those that are being judged. Lot disappears, and in chapter number 20, it's as if Lot has gone that way, and now Abraham goes this way. He, he picks up his tent stakes, he gathers up his, his clan, and they begin to move south. They're going to head down into an area along the Mediterranean Sea, near modern-day Gaza, if you look at a, at a map of Israel, near modern-day Gaza, and they're going to begin to live there. They go there looking, in all likelihood, for pasture for their animals. And when they get there, they realize that they are living, listen carefully, in the land, the territory of the Philistines. And the Philistines, in case you aren't aware, these are the people who will produce Goliath. These are mighty men, great warriors. And so Abraham comes into their territory a bit intimidated, I believe. And he gets there and he begins to encounter a Philistine king named Abimelech. And we're going to read about his encounter with Abimelech in chapter number 20. You follow along. Verse one. I'm going to read the whole chapter. It's only 18 verses. So you follow along. Genesis chapter 20, verse 1. And Abraham journeyed from there toward the south country and dwelled between Kadesh and Shur. And he sojourned in Gerar, there in that Philistine territory. He sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. Now, you ought to underline that. It's a very passing statement, but it is a consequential truth. He just took her, took her from Abraham and took her to be in his harem as one of his lesser wives or maybe even to be a primary wife. But the point is, he took her from Abraham to himself. Verse 3. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man for the woman that you have taken. Because you've taken that woman, you're a dead man. For she is a man's wife. But Abimelech had not come near to her. He had not touched her. And he said, Lord... Will you slay a righteous nation? Are you going to let my nation die 
because you're going to judge me? Did she not say, or did he not say unto me, she is my sister? And she, even she herself said, yeah, he's my brother. In the integrity of my heart, in the innocency of my hands, I have done this. Abimelech says, I didn't know. They didn't tell me the truth. Verse 6, and God said unto him in a dream, I know that you did this in the integrity of your heart. For I also withheld you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not allow you to touch her. Now, therefore, restore the man his wife, for he is a prophet, and he shall pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not restore her, know that you shall surely die, you and all that are yours. Therefore, Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all of his servants and told his servants these things in their ears, and the men were terrified. And verse 9, Abimelech came to Abraham and said unto him, What have you done? What have I offended you? How have I offended you that you would bring on me this in my kingdom this great sin? You have done things that should not have been done. Abimelech said unto Abraham, What did you see in us? Why would you do this thing? Why would you lie like this? And Abraham said, Because I thought that surely the fear of God is not in this place, and they will slay me for my wife's sake. And yet, indeed, she is my sister. She's the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother. She's my half-sister. And she became my wife. I married her. And it came to pass when God caused me to wander from my father's house that I said to her, this is the kindness which you are to show unto me. Everywhere we go, you shall say of me, he is my brother. So Abimelech took sheep and oxen and men servants and women servants and gave them to Abraham and restored to him Sarah his wife. And Abimelech said to Abraham, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell wherever you want. And unto Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver, and he is to you a covering of the eyes unto all that are with you and to everybody else. And in this she was, uh, the King James says reproved, it means vindicated. She was vindicated. So Abraham prayed unto God, And God healed Abimelech and his wife and his maidservants, and they bare children. For the Lord had fast closed up all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Now you can imagine when Abraham and his clan come riding into this territory of Gerar, he is very quickly found out by King Abimelech. Remember, it's not just Abraham and Sarah that come down there. We've learned that over the years, Abraham had acquired a great number of people, hundreds of people that were a part of his clan, a part of his camp. He had many servants and and many people who lived in in his camp. He also had many sheep, many flocks, many herds, many camels. And so, all of this entourage of, of people and animals showed up and King Abimelech is made aware of it right away. They'll be living here under the authority of King Abimelech, really at the grace and the mercy of King Abimelech in this land. And look at what verse 2 says. I mentioned it's such a plain statement in verse number 2. It says that Abimelech took Sarah. That's it. He took her to be with him, to be his wife or to be in his harem. 
And in whichever case it is, whether she's a secondary wife in a harem or whether she's a primary wife, in either case, she would now be expected to share his bed with him and to be one of his many partners. And so he takes her to be his wife. Now, by the way, this tells me that when Abraham came riding into, his, into the area of Gerar, that Abimelech, coming to check out what's happening, sees Sarah and says, Wowzers, I want her to come to my house. She's beautiful. Remember, we've learned Sarah is beautiful. So she, she's taken by King Abimelech. But hang with me for a second. When this ha- If y'all are listening, shout amen. When she was taken by Abimelech, Sarah is 89 years old. Can I get a witness? 89 years old. She's, she's 89 and her beauty has never faded. She's still turning heads. Now, to be fair, to be fair, in those days, men were still, men and women were still living longer than we live now. So the Bible tells us that she lived to be 127 years old. And so if she's 89, it would be the equivalent of a modern woman somewhere between the ages of 55 and 59 or 60, right in there. So it makes a little more sense like that. But in any case, she is taken by Abimelech to be in his household and to share his bed. Now imagine what this would mean for Sarah. I mean, she's going to, she's, she's put in a horrible position. She's now fearful for what her future looks like. She's been taken from her longtime husband. Now everything has changed for her and she's going to have to violate her morals and, and she's going to end up sleeping with this pagan king. So if you're like me, you're going, Abraham, dude, what are you thinking? How in the world could you let this happen to your wife? How could you let her be taken by King Abimelech? Well, the answer to that question is very, very simple and very obvious in this text, and I want you to jot it down. It happened because Abraham was operating out of fear. Here's the way I would say it. There was fear in this faithful man. He was a faithful man. He was a man of faith. But in chapter number 20, he is operating on the basis of fear. I said to you earlier that every Christian will throughout our lifetimes, to some degree or another, there will be a varying degree of tension of faith and fear. We will all deal with it, but I need you to hear me. The fear that we deal with in our lives as followers of Jesus is real, but it is, if y'all are listening, shout amen, it is not from the Lord. Hear me. The fear that we wrestle with, I'm not talking about godly fear, reverent fear, I'm talking about sinful fear. The fear, the anxiety that we deal with is not from God the Lord. I want you to hold your finger in Genesis 20. I hope you will. And turn with me to the New Testament book of 2 Timothy. I just want to read to you one verse. 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse number 7. Many of you will recognize this statement from Paul to Timothy where he says in verse number 7, for God has not given us the spirit of fear. The spirit that we have been given The Holy Spirit within us does not produce within us fear. Listen carefully. If you are wrestling or as you are wrestling with fear, know this, that the fear that you're feeling, the anxiety that's consuming you, the fears that that compete with your faith and trust in God, 
Those fears are not from the Lord. He says in verse number 7, For God did not give us the spirit of fear, but rather he gave us the spirit of power, the spirit of love, and the spirit of a sound mind, or the spirit of self-discipline. He gave us power by his spirit that we would uh, walk in strength. He gave us love by his spirit that we might love him and love others. He gave us self-control by his spirit that we might walk through this world in victory. The fears that we have are real, but they are not divine. They are not from the Lord. On your way back to Genesis, I hope you'll stop by Psalm 46. Listen to what the psalmist writes in Psalm 46 and verse number 1. He says, God is our refuge. The word refuge means God is our shelter. God is our refuge and our strength. He gives us power. He is a very present help in trouble. If I know this, if I know that no matter what's happening in my life, that God is covering me with his care, he's my shelter. If I know that he has given me the strength I need to face whatever I'm facing, and if I know that he is not distant but he's present, then I can say I will not fear. Now you might say, but pastor, it's easy for you to say. You're not going through what I'm going through. You're not walking the road that I'm walking. And if you knew the hardships of my life, if you knew the loss that I'm enduring, if you knew the uncertainty in my future, you'd be scared to death. Well, the psalmist said, God is my refuge and my strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, verse 2, we will not fear, listen, though the earth be removed and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though the waters thereof roar and be troubled, though the mountains be covered with the swelling. The psalmist says, if the earth drops from beneath my feet, here's this truth. If God is my shelter, God is my strength, God is present with me, I need not fear, though the earth itself pass away. The fear that we have is real. But it's not from God. Because God wants us to trust in him and to walk through life's difficulties like Abraham faced and others. To walk through those by faith. So let's, let's go back to Genesis and talk for a few minutes about what fear does in the life of a child of God. We all wrestle with it. What is the consequence of fear in our lives? You see the consequences, what fear does to us in the, uh, in the life of Abraham. The first thing is this, jot it down. It is that fear causes us to see our circumstances rather than see our Savior. Now I want you to think with me. If I have my eyes focused on Jesus, as, as the scripture commands me with that I am fixing my eyes upon Christ, and suddenly... To, to quote Psalm 46, the earth begins to drop beneath me. The props get kicked out. The hurts come. The disappointments come. The uncertainty is there. I'm to keep my eyes on him and trust him. But what fear does is it causes me to take my eyes off him and begin to look at my circumstances. And when I begin to look at my circumstances, I don't see him anymore. In fact, look at what is asked in Genesis chapter 20 and verse number 10. When Abimelech says... To uh, Abraham, what did, what did you see? Why would you do this to us? And listen to his answer, verse 11. Abraham said, 
Because I thought, surely the fear of God is not in this place. They will kill me for Sarah's sake. Abraham can't see his God. He can't see the promise that God is making him, has made him. He can't see the faithfulness of God over 25 years. He, he's gotten his eyes so far off God, the only thing he can see are the enemies, the Philistines, the warriors that he's living in their land now. And he's scared to death. And he thought, they don't fear God. And they'll kill me. It causes us to take our eyes off of the Lord. Psalm 118 in verse number 6 says this, The Lord is on my side. Therefore, I will not fear. What can man do to me? If God is on my side, what do I have to fear? Man can't do anything to me. If Abraham had simply done his morning devotion and read Psalm 118, if he had... He said, well, he couldn't. It hadn't been written yet. I know, but wouldn't it have been nice if he could have? If he could have begun his day by saying, you know what? I see all these Philistines. I see King Abimelech. I know what he's got on his mind. I'm not going to let that happen. God's with me, and I am going to trust in the Lord. But he didn't do that. He got his eyes off the Lord, and he saw his circumstances. So here's my question to you. What circumstance are you facing that has gotten your eyes off the Lord and on everything else? What's, what's the hardship that's come into your life? What's the disappointment that you've encountered? What's the loss that you're carrying? What's the, what's the, the uncertainty about tomorrow? What is it that has gotten your eyes off the Lord? And hear the words of the psalmist and learn from the failed example of Abraham that we should keep our eyes on the Lord. And if we will know he is with us present, our shelter, our strength, And with us that we do not have to fear. The second thing that happens when we walk in fear is that we compromise. Fear causes us to compromise. Because Abraham was afraid, rather than walking in faith and simply telling the truth, he begins to compromise the truth and talk about Sarah as being his sister. Look at verse number 2, chapter 20, verse 2. And Abraham said... As they come into sojourning in Gerar, verse 1, Abraham said of Sarah, she is my wife. I I don't know. I can see as they're riding into town, you know, he's going, this is my wife. Uh, This is my sister, not my wife. Pretty girl, sister, sister, pretty girl. (laughs) Not my wife, never married. She's my sister. He's telling everybody, this is my sister. And then when King Abimelech takes her and God says, she's married. Look at verse number two, or verse number five, rather. Abimelech says, he told me she was his sister. And even she said, yep, he's my brother. And so he comes to Abraham in verse number 12, and he says, or verse 10, he says, why did you do this? And in verse 12, Abraham says, well, I kind of told the truth. I mean, she is my sister, sort of. We have the same dad, not not the same mother. Now look, don't get all sideways on that. Not that uncommon back then. Stay with me, okay? He said, she's my half-sister, but I did marry her. I just left that part out. But I did say that she's my sister, and she kind of is. This is what happens when you walk in fear. You begin to compromise what's true and shade the truth in order to self-protect. Right? So rather than just walking in integrity... Walking in truth, we begin, we don't lie necessarily, but we shade the truth in every possible angle so that it reflects on us the best because we don't trust God. 
And so we begin to compromise. I mean, think about it. Abraham and Sarah are both lying. And that lying, that telling of a half-truth, half has put them in a position where she now could be violated in, in a way that would destroy the plan of God that he had instituted through the covenant with Abraham. Loved ones, when we're controlled by fear, we do the same thing. And so here's what that looks like sometimes. You're afraid you'll lose friends. Let, let, me, let me suggest it this way. Maybe you, you might say, what, where, have I, where might I compromise because I'm, af I'm afraid of losing friends? Your Bible presents for you a morality, a value system that is the polar opposite of the culture that you live in. Your Bible, if you say among friends, maybe coworkers, on your campus, in your place of business, on your social media feed, if you communicate a pro-biblical stance on issues, you will be unfriended, you will be canceled, you might lose your job, you might be ostracized because you took a stand on biblical values. And so maybe you've gone, you know, I'm afraid of losing my friends. I'm afraid of being canceled. So I'm just going to, I'll just be quiet. I'll shade the truth. I just won't speak and I'll, I'll leave that alone. You're operating on fear because you don't believe God can take care of you if you speak truth. Maybe you own a business or you're in sales and you're afraid that you're going to lose the sale and so you oversell the product. You ever been there? You, you say things about the product or the service that aren't true. Here's another way to say it. You lie. You lie to get the sale because you're afraid that if you tell the truth, you're not going to get the sale. Maybe you're in a situation where you, you think, I'm, I don't have enough money. I'm not going to have enough money. And so I've got I've to do some things. I've got to lie. I've got to cheat. I've got to steal. i to cheat on my taxes because I don't trust that God can take care of me. Here's one. Maybe you're afraid you won't have enough money and so you don't tithe your income. You don't invest into the work of the gospel. You know what God said. Trust me. Put me first. Invest in my kingdom. And you're like, I can't do that. I'm not going to do that. I don't, I, I, I don't think I'll have enough money if I do that. So you, you compromise what God said to do rather than trusting that God promises to take care of you if you'll obey him. When we walk in fear, we compromise. Maybe I'm speaking to a young lady, maybe not so young of a lady, and you're in a dating relationship, and you're afraid you're going to lose that guy. And so you give in to his sexual demands because you know it violates God's word. You know that the Lord doesn't want you engaging in those activities prior to marriage, and yet you're just scared to death you're going to lose him. And so rather than walk in faith that God's sovereign over all of your relationships, you compromise. The fact is, when we walk in fear and not in faith, we compromise. The third thing that happens when we walk in fear and not in faith is that we fall into past sin patterns. This is verse number 13. Abraham said, it came to pass when God calls me to wander from my father's house, by the way, that was at least 25 years earlier, that I said unto her, Sarah, this is the kindness that you're to show me. Everywhere we go, you are to say he is my brother. That was their strategy from the beginning. 
And maybe at that point he had this much faith and he had this much fear. And so he said, listen, I need you to lie. And we're going to trust God, but I need you to lie so that they won't kill me. Maybe that would have been excused 25 years ago. Maybe that was excused in Genesis 12 when he went down to Egypt and told Pharaoh that she was his sister. But he's been walking with God for 25 years now. God's been faithful to him all along the way. God's revealed his truth to him. And he should have grown enough in his faith to say, I'm not going to fall back into that sin pattern. When we walk in fear, we fall into sin patterns. Things that we just have always done. Faith causes me to walk outside of my comfort zone when I'm not walking in faith, but I'm walking by fear. I want to get comfortable. So I fall back into those sin patterns. When we walk by fear, bad things happen in our lives. Now, I want you to see, however, even though we sometimes struggle with this fear thing, that God's grace is is, uh, beautiful. And so he intervenes here. You see God's intervening grace beginning in verse number 3. Where even though Abraham has been walking in fear, he's been lying about Sarah to to, uh, protect his own hide. He put his wife in peril. Even though he's fallen back into his old sin patterns, God still shows him grace. Look at what verse number six says. God said unto Abimelech in a dream, I know you did this in the integrity of your heart, for I've withheld you from sinning against me, therefore I would not allow you to touch her. Do you see what God did? He protected Sarah's purity. Sarah was put in a position where she was going to lose her purity. She's going to be in the bed of a man that's not her husband. And God said, I'm not going to let that happen. So he intervened. I don't know how, but he didn't let Abimelech touch her so that God protected her purity. You know the second thing that he did? Both campuses shout amen. Listen, do you know what he did? God guarded his covenant promise. You know why I say that? She's 89 years old, right? She's going to have a baby by the time she's 90. I don't know if you remember from biology class, but that takes nine months, okay? She's going to get pregnant soon. That means that her body which years earlier had stopped producing what she had to produce in order to to, uh, have a child, her body, which had gone through menopause, her body, which could not produce a baby because she was no longer producing what was required, do you understand? Her body came back to life. That, those, that cycle came back to life. That part of her came back to life. She was going to have a baby. And can you imagine if it had been Abimelech's baby? Can you imagine the catastrophe to the plan of God? If Abimelech had gone to bed with with Sarah and she had conceived? And so God said, you're not touching her. Ain't nobody going to have a baby with that woman except Abraham. And ain't might not be good English, but it's good theology. (laughs) God protected, he guarded his covenant. I love that. Third thing that he did is that God uh, preserved Abraham's ministry. One of the most amazing things to me about this whole text is that God, even though Abraham was walking in fear and failed him, God preserved his ministry. Look at verse number seven. God said to Abimelech, restore the man his wife, for he is a prophet. Well, I think you'd agree he's a pretty sorry prophet at the moment, but he's a prophet. And he said, he'll pray for you. In verses 17 and 18, he did. He prayed for Abimelech and he was healed. God preserved Abraham through his fear and his mistakes and kept him 
where God wanted to be. I wonder how many times God has kept you and me in his plan, in his will, though we were walking by fear and not trusting him, and he still made his plan happen. Well, I'm over time, but let me just finish by giving you this final thought, and we're not going to talk about it because I'll give it to you next week, really, but I want you to know that beginning in chapter 21, in the very next verse, chapter 21, uh, verses 1, 2, and 3, you're going to see God's persistent grace, and we'll talk about it next week, but the point is that through all of Abraham's failures, this long journey of 25 years, and though he was faithful, he still stumbled, he had... He had uh, lied twice about Sarah. He's walking in fear, and yet God just keeps on working and bringing him along until finally in chapter 1, 21, this baby that we've been hearing about since chapter 12 is going to be born. And in chapter 21, verses 1, 2, and 3, Sarah conceives, and she has a baby, and laughter fills Abraham's tent because Isaac is born. My question to you is, how are you doing with the tension between fear and faith? Believer, child of God, are you in your current situation, whatever it may be, are you leaning into faith and asking God to grow your faith strong? Let that fear diminish so you can walk in faith and please him. Or are you looking at your circumstances, compromising what you know is true, and leaning into, into fear, and you're finding your faith getting weaker and weaker and weaker along the way? Trust in the Lord. Though the earth fall out from underneath your feet, we will not fear. We will trust in the Lord. And if you don't know Jesus, trust in him as your savior. Either campus, you might be with us today and you've never trusted in Christ. Trust in him. He died for you and rose from the dead to be your savior. And if you will trust him with your sin and yourself, he will forgive you.